All right, let's all take our seats. You can turn to or turn on your phone and go to a browser and type in 1 Corinthians 5 ESV. 1 Corinthians 5 ESV. And as we've been doing, please stand as we read 1 Corinthians 5. This morning's reading comes from 1 Corinthians 5, verses 1 through 13. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present, with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord." Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual morality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging others? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Sobering passage, isn't it? Well, sin complicates our lives. Sin complicates basic conversations, doesn't it? Simple back and forth in a store, buying a car or something like that can get really complicated if suddenly one of you is sinning against the other, maybe unknowingly. You know, a kickball game among second graders can get complicated when sin enters the picture. You were out. No, I wasn't. I was safe. Protecting our airspace actually can get complicated when sin enters the picture. You do nothing while a Chinese spy balloon goes, goes by, and people think that was the wrong call, and so suddenly you think, we, we need to do something. And so we're just going to send a bunch of fighter jets up and blow out of the sky a bunch of balloons that are totally harmless. <clears throat> sin complicates. Sin complicates parenting. Julia Shears is a writer, so she wrote an article called Raising Children Without the Concept of Sin. It's quite a title, isn't it? So in this, uh, in this article of hers, she tells the story of, of her nine-year-old and her. She's watching a parade, I believe, beautiful day in Indiana, and her daughter asks her, Mama, what is sin? And so she thinks back to her own Christian fundamentalist background, and she, just, she says uh, of that background, she says, actions, words, even thoughts weren't safe from scrutiny. The list of sinful offenses seemed infinite. So her solution was to avoid the concept altogether with her child. So her child being an activist child in her own way, she was very pleased with the moral code of her child, and so she didn't feel like that question required an answer. Mama, what is sin? And so she just went on with the day. 
And in some ways, we can sympathize with shears. We understand that it's easy to call things sin that actually are not sinful. And you can grow up in a culture where too many things were called sinful. And so you are tempted to throw out the culture or, or the title or the name altogether. But of course, that's, that's the wrong response. That really is throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Well, in this series uh, from 1 Corinthians, we're calling it Being God's People. And the focus today is if you're going to be God's people, then you're going to be people who take sin seriously. Being God's people means taking sin seriously. So we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, as you've picked up, which means there's four chapters before this, and there's, uh, I don't know, eight chapters or seven chapters after this. It goes to 1 Corinthians 13, uh, 16, sorry. 1 Corinthians 16, this is a, a letter written by Paul to the Corinthians. He didn't, he didn't write it himself. There was actually a co-author involved, but Paul's the basic author. So he's the one who founded the church in Corinth along with uh, his team, his apostolic team. Uh, that, would, that would have been the 50s AD. So that was almost 20 years after the crucifixion, the resurrection, Pentecost, those key events. So that year, AD 33, is, Paul is saved that later that year, actually, after Pentecost. Some almost 20 years later, he founds the church in Corinth. And then in a, uniquely... For Paul, he has this back-and-forth correspondence uh, with this church. And it's unique, uniquely not, not in that he wrote letters. He actually wrote 13 letters. It's unique in how many letters were written. So we have two letters, 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. And there's at least two other letters. And in fact, our, our passage today re- refers to one of those. So four letters uh, written from Paul to the Corinthians. And they, they're writing letters to him. So it's a very active correspondence which is helpful. It means we can learn a lot about Paul, about the Corinthians, about what is required of the people of God. And then the, and the focus of this chapter, of this extensive correspondence, is taking sin seriously. Now, one of the common uh, kind of reflexes almost we can have when, when we're talking about the subject of sin, or the, the sin of other people in particular, is who are we to judge? I mean, after all, we're all sinners. So how can we judge someone else's sin? And honestly, most of the time, that's exactly the right response. But sometimes it's absolutely the wrong response. And so Paul's going to help us think about what some of those times are. So taking sin seriously, we've got three points today, just basically tracking through the passage. The first one is rebuking the church, and this is Paul rebuking the church in Corinth. First five verses, and then protecting the church. Why is it that we want to take sin seriously? It's protecting the church. And then third is judging the church. And that touches on the subject of church discipline. So rebuking the church, protecting the church, and then judging the church. Let's pray. Father, we, we pray to you now, we come before your word now as sinners. And so we know that there are there is no one in this room who is sinless, and so we don't hear these words as a, as a sinless person or a sinless people. We're aware of that. And yet, even with that truth, Lord, you call us, sinful as we are, to act appropriately uh, with respect to the sin of others. First, certainly our, our response to sin is to repent of our own sin. But then when it comes to the sin of others, Lord, there are times where you really do want us to act, and sometimes strongly. And so as a church, we pray for your mercy, your grace. We pray that we would be a people that takes sin seriously. Lord, let us not be casual or flippant about sin because of how destructive it is for us, for relationships, for the church itself. So Lord, let us be those who take it seriously and use this word now to guide us uh, in the right way to do that. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, point one is rebuking the church, and it's hard to miss that that's what's going on here, that Paul is rebuking uh, this church that he knows and loves so much. But we're going to focus on the first five verses. But before we dive into the the details of the passage, there's something we, we, we need to kind of keep track of, and actually the prophecies that have come forward from the book of Isaiah are, 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 are timely. Um, I was... I was thinking of Isaiah. We're going to go to another Isaiah text, actually, Isaiah 6, which essentially does the same thing. It presents God as the exalted, transcendent, and in this case, holy God. 
And the reason to, to do that in this sermon is because the, the, the way that we tend to underreact to sin, or the reason that we tend to underreact to sin is we, we do one of two things. One is we, we lower God or, or become casual about his holiness, or we become casual about the seriousness of sin, or both. Usually they're very related. And so we need to keep track. If we're going to have our bearings here and respond to this passage rightly, we really need to see that God is holy and sin is serious. God is holy and sin is serious. So I'm going to read one of probably the most famous passages in the Bible, actually, on God's holiness. This is from Isaiah chapter 6. I'm just going to read the first seven verses. And Isaiah tells us that in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. You know, that's just, that's just glory upon glory upon glory. You know, these are simple words meant to describe something that's indescribable. And what's indescribable about it is this is a, a glorious, exalted God that he is beholding. So he sees, sees the Lord on his throne. And then he says, Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. And with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundation of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts." Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. That tells us so much about God's holiness and about our sinfulness. God isn't just holy. He's not just holy, holy. He's holy, holy, holy. That's how the Bible says he's the mostest of the mostest. There is nothing and no one more holy than he is. His holiness is absolutely perfect holiness. Unblemished, sinless, perfect. And that speaks to his, his exalted, exaltedness. And it speaks to his moral purity. And then this guy, Isaiah, who's, you just have to think of Isaiah as the best we have. There's no one holier or more righteous or more obedient than this guy, Isaiah. He's, he's the greatest of Israel's writing prophets. And so he beholds this holiness and he cries out, woe is me, for I am lost. He's instantly struck with how completely sinful he is in, with, in comparison to the holiness of God. And so he says he's lost. And the angel doesn't say, no, you're not. You're not that bad. There's just so many people so much worse than you. You have no idea how bad people can be. The angel totally agrees with him, which means God totally agrees with them. But God does something. He acts, and he removes the guilt. He takes this burning coal from this altar, and he burns it away burns away his sin. It says, touch your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. It's, it's a, just such a powerful gospel image. We really want to keep that idea of God before us often. The holiness of God, the seriousness of sin, it all comes together right there. And so as you think of God in that way and think of sin in that way, well, then when we turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, it, it begins to make a lot more sense. We don't begin to think, Paul, you're overreacting. These people aren't that bad. No, we begin to think, yes, that is appropriate because sin is that serious. Now back to our text. So Paul is rebuking this church, rebuking these people for underreacting to a sin. He's rebuking the guy who is sinning, but actually even more, he's rebuking the church for its reaction to the guy who's sinning. So the guy sinning is described as, as, a, as being sexually immoral and we're in verse 1 now, sexually immoral and, and of a kind of immorality that even pagans wouldn't do it. And so he has his 
father's wife, so his stepmom. So he and his stepmom have a sexual relationship. So it's, it's a grotesque, uh, a morally grotesque relationship. And so lots of quotes in the commentaries uh, from the Romans about how, how wretched that would be and how, I mean, this, and, and as promiscuous as uh, the Greco-Roman culture was, this sin was crossing a line, even for them. And of course, the Jews, it was completely forbidden. And they were tolerating it. You know, we don't get details about exactly how or for how long they were tolerating it, but for a period of time, they had been tolerating this. And then Paul says in the beginning of verse 2, and you were arrogant. You're arrogant. Now, there's, there's dispute about in what way are they being arrogant. Is, are they being arrogant because they're so casual and free with, with sins and inhibitions? Or are they being arrogant because... I mean, he's been rebuking them for their arrogance. They, they think of themselves as these really spiritual people, and here they are doing this wretched thing. I think it's probably the second, but it doesn't matter. They're arrogant. They're arrogant while they are tolerating the scandalous public sin. And so he calls for radical action. He calls for them to respond. He calls for them to mourn. Ought you rather to mourn? You know, you're, you're emotionally unaffected by this sin. You're not even touched by it. Ought you rather to mourn? You know, you're being arrogant, but shouldn't you mourn? And then even, maybe even stronger, he wants them to remove the person from among you in verse 2. And then in verse 5, even more dramatically, he says to deliver this man to Satan. Deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. There are other places where Paul uses that kind of deliver to Satan language. So in 1 Timothy 1.20, talking about Hymenaeus and Alexander, they had been very problematic to his ministry and the, and the gospel itself. And so it says that he handed them, handed them over to Satan so that they may learn not to blaspheme. Well, it's, it sounds confusing for that to be a redemptive action, but it, but it is. So he, he does want them to hand this person over to Satan to remove this person from their midst, but he, he wants them to do that so that that person might be saved. So verse 5, deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that, so that. I mean, all those verses lead to that so that. He's not trying to punish the man. He's not trying to punish the church or make everyone's life just unnecessarily painful and uncomfortable, he wants this to be a rescue mission. He wants this to be a saving action. He wants this man's life, soul, to be saved. And so destruction of the flesh, you know, he's not wishing that the man would die. It doesn't, it doesn't mean that. It, it seems to have in mind just all the, consequences that, all the consequences that go along with sinful choices in this life. You experience those, and you reach. And what he wants to happen is that he reaches some point where he realizes this is terrible. I need to repent, and so he turns back to the Lord, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So he's really wishing uh, that in this life the man might experience all the suffering necessary, so that he would repent, so that in the next life he would be with the Lord forever. Again, it's a redemptive action. It's not just punishment. So this first point, the application for us, is to take sin seriously. To take sin seriously. Because God is holy and because sin is serious. Now we get to point two and we see some of the reason why sin is so serious. Why, why should they go to this pretty extreme action? Uh, uh, removing someone from the church, delivering them over to Satan. That is obviously an extreme action. We don't treat all offenses in the church that way, of course. So why would, why would the church go to that extreme action? And the answer is, to, in verse 2, or uh, point 2, to protect the church. So let me read verses, verses five, 6 through 8. That's where we are now. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us, therefore, celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, 
the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So we take sin seriously to protect the church. And now to make this point, he uses a metaphor. And I'm going to tell you what the metaphor is. And this is everything I know about this, which I learned, of course, this week. So leaven and bread, you know, the ancient practice of leaven and bread. Uh, we, we perhaps know about yeast, you know, adding yeast to dough to make it rise, something like that. But in the ancient world, one of the common practices was you, you make your unleavened dough, and as you, as you make that dough, you, you pull off a piece of it. You pull off a piece and you set it aside. And then you just, you just leave it out in the open air. So you've got your unleavened bread, which you, you can eat. But then you have this other piece which you're going to leave out. And as, it, as it's left out, well, the, it will soak up yeast spores in the air. And so as it sits out, that becomes leaven, which you can then add to. So then you make up some other dough, the second batch of dough. And you add this other the, uh, uh, piece from the first batch to the new dough, and now you have leavened bread. Now your bread will rise when you cook it. And so before you cook it, of course, you need to take off a piece of it and set it aside for the third loaf, and, as, and that just continues. And so that's the image that he has in mind. The way that you, you take that, that leaven and you add it to the dough, and it spreads throughout the entire loaf. Because the entire loaf rises, right? Not just a piece of the loaf. The entire loaf rises. And so, so in a sense, that leaven is, is, is spreading throughout the entire loaf. It corrupts the whole loaf. I mean, if it's baking, it affects positively the whole loaf. But if it's sin, then it's infecting, affecting the whole loaf. And so he's saying that's what happens when you tolerate certain kinds of sin in the church. You like to think it, it kind of stays in one spot in the church, you know, that it's going to, uh, those three people that are affected by this sin are, are the only people that are affected by the sin in the church. And yet over time, that seed like a cancer, uh, that sin like a cancer is just going to spread throughout the whole loaf, the whole church. That's how, that's why we take sin seriously. That's why we act sometimes very forcefully actually as a church against sin because it has that kind of corrosive, cancerous effect. And then Paul continues to develop this metaphor. Uh, Paul's, in some ways, Paul's a little bit famous for mixed metaphors, but he didn't, he didn't attend the English classes we all attended and, and know that that's against the rules of, of writing. So we, we're, we're fine with it. So he takes this old leaven idea, and what, what's going to happen is, is leaven and unleavened bread is going to take him back to the Passover. So if you recall, in uh, Exodus 12, in those chapters, when the first Passover with, uh, with the Israelites is happening, they were to make unleavened bread. And in fact, every year when they celebrated the Passover, they would make unleavened bread. And so there's some speculation that maybe one of the reasons for that is every year you had to, had to kind of start fresh. So we've been kind of pulling a batch of dough and then adding a batch of dough for the next, for the next loaf and the next loaf and the next loaf. But you can imagine just maybe that isn't the healthiest of things to do. And so periodically you want to start fresh. We're going to start with unleavened bread. And then that whole process can start over with a new batch. But this, so Paul's going to go back to the Passover. And of course, when he goes back to the unleavened bread at the Passover, that's going to take him to the Passover sacrifice of the lamb, who is Jesus Christ. So verse 7, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us, let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So he's doing a lot here. So we cleanse out leaven, cleanse out the sin, so that we may be a new lump, fresh. It's a fresh start he's talking about. You know, you're, you're cleansed. And he tells them to cleanse out the leaven as you really are unleavened. That's interesting, isn't it? He's telling them to do something which they already are. Cleanse out the leaven as you really are unleavened. So that's an indicative, a statement, a fact. You are unleavened. So act like it. That's really what he's saying. 
Act like what you are. Act like what you are. Be, you know, in your behavior, move closer and closer and closer to what you actually truly are. You are unleavened because you're cleansed by Christ. Because See what he says there. You really are unleavened for Christ. Our Passover has been sacrificed. You're not unleavened because you've grown so much as a Christian and now you're sinless. If you are a Christian, you are unleavened. You are cleansed. You're unleavened because or for Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. So sin is serious, deadly serious, and yet... Christ's blood is sufficient. That's what he's telling us. Christ's blood is sufficient for the most serious of sins. It can cleanse you perfectly. Perfectly. Anthony Thistleton talks about the kind of just the power of this image, of the, the cleansing image, and he goes back to the Passover. Uh, from Exodus, and he says this, the blood of the Passover lamb splashed upon the lintel of the door of the redeemed household marks the identity of those who are about to enter a new freedom from bondage to a new purity of service as God's own holy people. The blood of the Passover lamb splashed upon the lintel of the door of the redeemed household. Because you remember back in the, the Passover the, the first Passover, what happened was you, 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 sacri- you, you killed the, the lamb, took its blood, and you took some of that blood and put it over the doorway. So that marked you, that marked you as God's people, that marked you, uh, uh, marked you as, as the one who will be protected from the angel of death as it sweeps through the city. So it marks the identity of those who are about to enter new freedom from bondage to a new purity of service as God's own holy people. Because, of course, after the Exodus, they go from being slaves to being worshipers, a nation. They go to serve the Lord, to worship the Lord. You know, uh, uh, Moses, time and again, when he was before Pharaoh appealing to let my people go, let my people go that they may serve the Lord. Let my people go that they may worship the Lord as he commanded. And so the, the inauguration of that moment when they step from slavery to worship is, is when that blood is above the doorway. Now for us, that's a powerful image. The same thing has happened to us. If you're a Christian, that is. If you're a Christian, then the blood of Jesus has marked you. You know, it's, it's over you. It's marked you. You are God's own, and therefore, his wrath will pass you by. Pass over. His wrath will pass over you. And you go from being a slave of sin to being a worshiper, serving the Lord. You go to, into that new freedom from bondage to a new purity of service as God's own holy people. That's the effect of the gospel. So in, this, uh, in these verses here, you get, you get another one of those great therefore passages. You know, the gospel is true, therefore you need to do something, or you need to be something, or you need to think something. And the therefore here, you know, the truth of Christ's blood being shed for you, and you being a recipient of the benefits of that blood, the, the, the great therefore is that you cleanse out the old leaven, that you would repent of sins, leave sins behind. And then the other therefore is that you would worship. Let us therefore celebrate, celebrate the feast, sing, worship, praise him, thank him, delight in him for this sacrifice that you've received. So sin is serious, but Christ's blood is sufficient. Sin is serious, but Christ's blood is sufficient. So that's point two. Point three, judging the church. Now we enter into a, one of the New Testament important passages on church discipline. There's, there's several others, but this is, this is one of the important ones. But it has to do with judging the church. So verses 9 through 13, I wrote to you in my letter, so we call this 1 Corinthians, right? This letter of 1 Corinthians, but he's referring to a previous letter, right? 
So that's at least three Corinthian letters. And then, anyway. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For, I, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges the outside. Those outside purge the evil person from among you. So one of those common reactions when it comes to dealing with the sin of others, as I mentioned, was that you respond with that, who am I to judge? After all, we're all sinners. And that is true. We're not to be judgmental. Where you're overly critical, overly negative, you're, you're judging, the judging part of you is just, a, is just a hyperactive part of you. You're always reflexively judging others and assessing others. Well, don't be like that. That's, that's not what Paul's talking about. But he does tell us very explicitly, you are to judge those inside the church. Now, God judges those outside. That's, that's an important difference there. God's going to take care of the people outside the church, but we, and of course he's going to judge us as well, but in this life, this, at this time, in this temporal kind of way, Paul's saying we need to judge those who are inside the church. That's our responsibility. So entrust those outside the church to God. We're going to take care of the people inside the church as he commands. And so, so he starts off here. And he says, I wrote you before not to associate with, with certain people, you know, sexually immoral people uh, or greedy or swindlers or idolaters. And they, they misinterpreted what he meant. They, they thought he meant anyone anywhere who was sexually immoral or greedy or an idolater. But if that was, if that was required, then you'd have to get out of the world itself. You'd have to leave the world. You'd have to, you'd have to die because that's the only way you could escape the sexually immoral, the idolaters and the greedy in this world. So that's not what he meant. And so he clarifies now what he did mean. So now I am writing, verse 11, but now I am writing not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of those sins. Now that idea of associating with means, in some ways it means like what it sounds like it means. You, you are with, physically with. You hang out with. You are in fellowship with. You are doing church together with. You are in relationship with the people that he's talking about. And, and normally, we, we just freely, we freely are together as the people of God. We don't discriminate on, on any basis. We just are freely together. But Paul's really, Paul's really saying here that there are times where you do need to discriminate in the right way, make, make distinctions between certain people. And so now he tells us the, the, key, the key distinction he's talking about. So the people he's talking about that we're not to associate with are people who bear the name of brother. That's really important. They bear the name of brother, meaning they identify as a Christian. They have a profession of faith. They bear the name of brother. That's the first thing. And then the second thing is they're guilty of these particular sins. Now, if they don't bear the name of brother, it's an unbeliever. Well, in that case, we reach out to them. We love them. We pursue them. We invite them to church. We want them to be saved. But if they bear the name of brother, that's different. If they bear the name of brother and they're guilty of these particular sins, well, that changes how we relate to the person. And what he's really telling us here is that there are certain behaviors which are completely inconsistent with being a Christian. In other words, he's saying you can't do that and claim to be a Christian. That's really what he's saying. You can't do that particular sin and claim to be a Christian. The two just simply do not go together. Now, he, like nowhere does he pretend that, sinner, that Christians are sinless. Christians will commit sins. But there are certain sin patterns and certain sin lifestyles where he's saying, if you're doing that, then you can't also claim to be a Christian. And so he has six specific sins we need to look at. So sexual immorality, greed, idolatry, you're a reviler, a drunkard, or a swindler, in verse 11. 
So the first one is sexual immorality. It's the, it's the Greek word porneia. And this is going to come up a good bit in the next uh, several chapters of 1 Corinthians. Porneia. So obviously the word uh, from which we get pornography from. So it's sexual immorality. And it includes a whole array of sexual sin. But it is important that throughout the here and then throughout this passage, Paul isn't using verbs. He's using nouns to speak of these people. It's a certain kind of person he's talking about, not just someone who struggles in a certain way. That's really important. And so even this uh, uh, se- um, sexually immoral people is a noun, pornos. It's a person who does sexual, sexual immorality, and not just occasionally, and, and is working to stop. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about someone who's really given over to it. In some ways, they're defined by it. They have become a, not just someone who's struggling with a sin, but they have, they have completely embodied that sin in some ways. And so for, for that kind of person, he's saying, if they identify as a Christian, don't even associate with them. And then he says, greedy. Greedy people. Again, it's a noun. It's not a verb. Someone who struggles with greed or struggles with covetousness or struggles with idolatry in certain ways. That, you know, idolatry of the heart in certain ways. But someone who is a greedy person, that, that defines them in a very comprehensive way. And as uh, one commentator said, it's, it's that they so uh, embody greed in a, in a, in a, in a, in a, a selfish covetousness that they go to the point of, of taking advantage and exploiting other people. They're going to they're gonna control the people around them and the situations around them so that they get more. They are a grasping people who always want more than they have. Again, it's, it's not just you know, struggling with greed or covetousness on an occasional way, uh, struggling with jealousy of what the things that other people have, their possessions or something. It's, it's more controlling. It's more comprehensively a part of you. Then you get to an idolater, someone who bows down before idols, other gods. Not just tempted to turn your job into an, uh, an idol, which can happen, or your family into an idol, which can happen, or food into an idol. There's a lot of things we can be tempted to turn into idols, but this is, you are completely given over to pursuing a false god. And then you get to reviler, which really means a verbal abuser, someone who's abusing others verbally. Now, there's a, there's a whole array of speech sins in the Bible where you're, you're speaking evil or speaking negatively or speaking overly critically, but the key with, where you cross the line into being a verbal abuser is where you're, it's, it's, a, it's a matter of intention. Your intention is to tear down and destroy other people with your words. You know, you're not just clumsy with your words, but you are like an assassin with your words. Your intent is to hurt and destroy other people with your words. So that's reviling. And then drunkard. And once again, it's a noun. You know, you are a drunkard, not just one who got drunk or struggles with drunkenness. You're a drunkard. You're given over to this sin. And there's a, there's a lack of repentance, a lack of owning the sin. There's a lack of um, battling the sin where you've, you've just, you're just given over. And, 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 you know, one test of that might be that that drunkard is going to look at you and say, who are you to judge? What right do you have to tell me what to do? Now, they're a drunkard. They're given over to this. And then the last one is a swindler. So they've, you know, they're, they're trafficking in the same greed, covetousness kind of way, selfishness kind of way, and now it turns into action. So they're a robber, a swindler, a rogue of some kind. They're, they're deceiving people intentionally. You know, this is not, you know, you sell a car and you didn't know what was, everything that was wrong with it. You feel bad. This is like, no, I knew everything that was wrong with it, and I asked for twice as much than it was worth. You're a swindler. And this list, this is, this is a sobering and a dark list, and it's a list that we need to be informed by, but at the same time, Paul gives us a clue that I mean things like these, not only these. So he finishes his list by saying, not even to eat with such a one. So he's talking about a type of a person, this type of a person, who embodies a behavior which is completely inconsistent with being a Christian. That type of a person. Don't even eat with such a one. 
And in this, you know, when, you, when, when the person so embodies these public sins in such an unrepentant way over a period of time, all that is important. You know, it's public sins that you can see clearly, and it's embodying these sins in an unrepentant way over a period of time. Again, it's not just a, a bad weekend he had, but this is over a period of time. Well, then a very forceful response is required. In fact, he closes, his, he closes this chapter by quoting Deuteronomy in a very sobering way. Purge the evil person from among you. Now, that's quoted in Deuteronomy about a half dozen times. And some of those times, the way that you purge that person is you stone them to death. So he's not calling for stoning to death. But a similar kind of, of forceful, definitive response from the community, however, is required. So purge the evil person from among you. And that is a, that is a not-so-subtle reminder that the Old Testament does speak to us. It does dictate our behavior. It is, there is a moral law in the Old Testament which we, which we recognize and, and, and honor. In some ways, that, that actually um, illustrates it perfectly because it, t- it says to purge the evil fr- person from among you, so the moral command ha- holds, but it doesn't imply stoning to death. Things have changed in that sense. So it's, it's, we carry this out within the realm of the church. Within the realm of the church, we exercise church discipline. In the old covenant, they would stone someone to death because it was a nation. So it illustrates it really perfectly. So purge the evil, evil person from among you. And it seems that the best interpretation of this is that you are removing the person from the church. You're telling them they can no longer participate in the life of the church. You're not just saying you're a non-member and we think you're a non-Christian, but we invite you to participate in the life of the church like all other unbelievers. But when you look at the passage, the cumulative effect of this passage, I think you have to say that he means remove them from the fellowship of the church. They're actually not welcome to participate in the life of the church any longer. So I'll just list out these removal phrases. I think we have those. So they remove the so-called brother. So in verse 2, he said, let him who has done this be removed from among you. Verse 5, deliver this man to Satan. Verse 7, cleanse out the old leaven. Verse 11, not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of the sins. Verse 11, not even to eat with such a one. It doesn't mean the Lord's Supper. It means not even to eat with such a one. And then verse 13, purge the evil person from among you. So when you just see all of that cumulatively, well then it seems like he has has to mean removing the person from the fellowship of the church. Which means as Christians we have in some ways three categories of people. In the last several weeks, we've talked about two categories of people, Christians and non-Christians. Christians have the Holy Spirit. That was, that was what was talked about in chapter 2. Non-Christians do not have the Holy Spirit. But this adds a third category to how we relate to people. So you have Christians. We embrace them as brothers and sisters. We love them. We take care of them. We fellowship with them. There are unbelievers that we reach out to, we love and evangelize, and we invite them actually to participate in the life of the church so that they might be saved. And then there's a third category of people who identify as Christians but behave in a way 180 degrees opposite to that. Them, well, if if they're a part of the church and they identify in that way and they're living that way, well, then we remove them from the church. You know, if they're not a part of our church, well, that's, that's someone else's concern. But if they're a part of our church, well, then we remove them from the church. So, in other words, this, this, this passage is giving us principles, not, not specific uh, procedures and, 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 and steps for church discipline, but it is giving us principles. If you want more of a step-by-step approach, you can turn to Matthew 18, verses 15 through 20, where Jesus uh, start, starts off with, you know, if someone sins, go to your brother you individually, privately, go to your brother, and if they don't respond to you, then it escalates. So there's kind of a step-by-step approach there. And in terms of our church, our, our official uh, church discipline process is in our member handbook, which is on our member resources page on the website. So you can find that online. But if you just think of 1 Corinthians 5, it does give us really critical principles when it comes to church discipline. So we will list, these are five, five principles from church, about church discipline from 1 Corinthians 5. Number one, the person is someone who claims to be a Christian and is a member of the church. Really important first step. Are they a member of your church? Are they claiming to be a Christian? 
That's number one. And then number two, the person is committing a visible scandalous sin or serious sin, however you want to label it. But it's, it's visible, it's clear. You know, it's not a motive of the heart that you're looking at. It's a behavior of, of, their, of their lives, which is clear and it's, and it's serious. The person is challenged but continues in the sin without repentance or attempting to change. That's kind of implied, actually. He doesn't, he doesn't specify that, but it's kind of implied by what he says. And then after sufficient time and process to establish, number two and three, the person must then be put out of the church. But you do want to add a fifth step. Lord willing, the person comes to repentance and his, and his, or, soul, his, his or her soul is saved on the day of the Lord. You, you, you do this still with redemption in mind, still with salvation in mind, still with forgiveness in mind, ultimate restoration in mind. Lord willing, they're going to they're gonna wake up and realize what they've been doing is, is horrible and they need to change and turn back to the Lord. And then their soul is saved on the day of the Lord. So we take sin seriously because our God is holy and because sin is serious. You know, we like to think that our own Private sins can just live with us, but actually our sins, if, if they're not properly dealt with, can become a cancer that spreads throughout the whole church. And so we do take sin seriously. You know, I joked earlier about the, the Chinese spy balloon incident, but it does illustrate really the two, the two reactions you don't want to have when it comes to the sin of other people. One is you do nothing and you just watch it fly by for, for days. It's up there. We, we have tons of pictures of it. It's beautiful. Wow, that's amazing. You just watch it go by, and you do nothing until it's in a place where it can't have any relative impact, and then you blow it out of the sky. That's a pretty bad underreaction, isn't it? Or you can take your jet fighters and think, you know, we've been treating sin too casually. We need to respond appropriately to sin, and so you just send a squadron of jet fighters up there and blow everything out of the sky, dangerous or not. That's a a good picture of a legalistic mindset. It's all sin. I know it. Well, we want somewhere in the middle there is the right response. You you deal with serious problems, serious sins at the appropriate time. And of course, that does take wisdom. We're we're, we're saying this, it's, it's always clear in a Sunday morning in a sermon. You know, you lay it out, you have these clear definitions, these clear five steps, whatever. But in real time, with real relationships and real people, obviously, it simply takes wisdom and the Holy Spirit and the grace of God to do it properly. And so we're aware of that. But in the end, we, we can't be intimidated to do it. There is a call to action for each of us individually and for us as a church to take sin seriously in, in right ways. So we don't want to be overly intimidated just because we might do it wrongly in some theoretical situation. In Hebrews 3, there's a, there's a great verse that, that really illustrates why it is that we need to take other people's sin seriously and not be indifferent and just watch it fly by. Hebrews 3, 12 and 13 says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. This this doesn't mean that every time we observe any kind of infraction, we remove someone from the church. That's not the intent here. But it is saying there are times where you need to verbally, actively, Tell someone that they're sinning and they need to stop sinning in a particular way. And the reason we need to do that is because sin is deceitful. It begins to uh, affect our thinking and our acting and our loves and our hates. We begin to get confused about what's up and what's down and what's left and what's right. And when that happens, we become hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Our situation becomes more and more and more and more precarious. You know, it's like there's a cliff out there, and we're just stepping closer and closer and closer and closer to that cliff, because we're really denying there's even a cliff there. And so our Christian brothers and sisters come around us, they see us moving toward the cliff, and they do something, they speak, they appeal, they act, so that we may not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So God help us. God help us to do it well, but God help us to do it as a church. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for the blood of Jesus. We thank you for the blood of Jesus. We thank you that over the doorposts 
of our hearts is the blood of Jesus. We are marked as his. We thank you that your wrath will pass us by because of that. Not because we are sinless, Lord, or because you don't take sin seriously, but because of the blood of Jesus in that blood alone. Lord, if we are unleavened bread, if we are cleansed of sin in, in that kind of definitive way, it's only because of the action that you've taken through the, the offering of your son, Jesus. So we give you praise and thanks for a gospel that is sufficient. It is sufficient. Lord, it's sufficient for all sinners, for all sin and for all sinners. There is no one beyond the reach of that, of that blood. As long as there's breath, that person is within reach of the blood of Jesus. So Lord, I pray that first of all, for all those in this room and for those who might hear this sermon, I pray that they would, they would feel that and know that at the deepest of levels, that their sin is not so great that they cannot be cleansed by the blood of Jesus. Lord, I pray that anyone hearing this would just know and know and know at the deepest crevice of their hearts that their sin is not beyond the reach of, of the cleansing power of Jesus. Their sins are terrible. They are. They are like Isaiah. On the day of judgment, they, they deserve to cry out, woe is me for I am lost. And yet, your provision for our sin is sufficient. It is sufficient for our sins. Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, celebrate the festival. Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Therefore, celebrate. Celebrate. Lord, let us be those people washed clean in Jesus, living our lives in worship. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.